welcome to the Transit Lounge. I'm your host, Chandra. As a recovering workaholic, I want to explore how you can do more of what you love without burning out. I'm on a mission to promote true well-being, the contented state of being happy, healthy, and prosperous. Through interviews with savvy entrepreneurs, authors, and industry experts, we'll share insights, inspiration, and practical tips on how you can be CEO you in the business of your life. Let's go. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Chandra. (laughs) I'm so excited about chatting with you today on so very many levels. Where are you in the country? Because I never actually know where you are. I'm in Brisbane at the moment. I arrived about three weeks ago and I'll probably be here for probably a few months. I'm here for personal reasons, for family reasons, Mm -hmm. and then I'll probably head off again, don't know where. Awesome. And that don't know where will make sense as we go through this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) So just to start off, it would be great to get a little snapshot introduction to who you are and what you actually do for work at the moment. Work is an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, I'm a casual journalist producer at the ABC at the Gold Coast. I've been, I've probably done five shifts there in mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. I haven't had permanent work since I resigned from my permanent position about four or five years ago. And I just like traveling and filling in bits and pieces and seeing the country and hopefully funding my travels via bits of work I do on the way. So far, I haven't had to fruit pick or, um, you know, fill shelves. But if it comes to that, I am prepared to do so. Yeah, cool. And so I sort of think of you as this traveling, wandering gypsy who leverages so much of your past experience and your capability to create this work life that you thriving and I think that it's something that a lot of people are curious about this idea and I'm certainly striving towards creating what I call being geo-flexible and that's what I think you are. Yes, very much so and people talk about work-life balance. I have to admit I'm work-life-life-life-life balance (laughs) which means Obviously, money isn't my priority, Mm -hmm. and that was something I decided early on when I made the decision to become, I call it fun employed, but when I became a transient, (laughs) I had to acknowledge that times were going to get financially difficult for me, and that was the biggest challenge that I had to face mentally, Mm -hmm. but it came pretty quick. I just knew in my head what I was capable of and off I did and did off I went and did it, much to my dad's disgust. <laughs> oh, there's so much in that that I really want to explore. So I'm so looking forward to getting into this chat. So that's a little snapshot of life according to Lisa right now. But let's maybe go back and talk about what you used to do when I guess you were more traditionally employed. What was your job? How did you get into that? What did you used to do? I have a science background. That was my first love. And then somehow I fell into the media. I don't have a journalism degree, but I came into the media when journalism degrees weren't required. You know, it was back in the cadet days. when Uh You you were apprentice more or less. Mm -hmm. And off I did and off I went. 
I was thrown in the deep end once. I was a radio announcer at 2XL in Cooma at the time in the Snowy Mountains. And one day the journalist was sacked and the boss came in and said, Lisa, we're moving you to the newsroom. And I went, I have no idea about news. Don't be ridiculous. And I nearly quit. And I went, no, all right, let's go. And within three months, I muddled through, somehow didn't get sued, but I muddled (laughs) through and then I sent three air checks out. And what air checks are, a little snapshot of my work. So I'd record a news bulletin and I sent it to three very high profile journalists that I really respected in the industry. And I didn't send them air checks out for a job. I just said, I'm in this little radio station and I'm getting no feedback. Would you mind taking a listen and letting me know how I can improve. And all three of them offered me a job. Wow. So I kind of went, oh, okay, I've been a, a journo slash cadet for three months. Maybe I'm good at it. Let's give this a shot. And so I accepted one of those job offers. And, yeah, the rest is history. I, I fell into it. And, again, I wasn't looking for a movement. It just happened because I put myself out there and mm-hmm. I put myself out for a critique, both good and bad. Yeah, Amazing. And that really touches on something that I think is an important skill to develop, or whether it's a skill or a characteristic, I don't know, about being open to requesting and receiving feedback. Because I think a lot of the times we can get very scared about making ourselves vulnerable by asking for feedback. And what we don't realize often is that that could be the very thing that you need in order to grow to whatever the next direction is for you, if you can just get past that fear of what the feedback might be? Very much so. And thankfully, I'm not fearful of it at all. But I do find these days, even these days, I will ask for feedback. Let's use the last week of of my casual work as an example. I was working with radio presenters and journalists I've never worked with before. So I had to produce their programs. I had to work very closely with them and not knowing them, how they worked, what their expectations were, I had no idea. So we got through the programs. And at the end of the program, I walk into the studio and I say, okay, what worked for you? What didn't work for you? How can we make this work better? How can I get the job done for you better? And they kind of said, oh, no, everything's fine. You know, you did everything great, which is great, but I wanted more. Mm. You know, I don't want them to feel, oh, Lisa's doing it differently to what my previous producer was. I wish she'd do it this way. I want people to take that opportunity. If I ask for feedback, tell me. If they say, oh, I didn't like the font you used, I didn't like whatever else, just tell me. Yeah. So interesting too because I think that links to the same sort of fear that we often have as an individual about receiving feedback that can come up when someone does request feedback that our instinct can be, just say everything was fine and whether maybe everything was fine and, you know, you are very good at what you do. So I'm sure they were extremely happy. And at the same time, in order for anyone to grow, to keep improving, the growth is in the here's what we could tweak, here's what you could have done differently or in the past we've found this has worked. But it's about our willingness to give that feedback to someone and to be open to receiving it that I think often people avoid. Yeah, and there is a methodology. It doesn't have to be, okay, tell me everything I stuffed up. (laughs) There's a feedback model that I often use and there's a few stages in it where it's like, just say I was the presenter that I was producing. Oh, Lisa, I thought it went pretty well, but what do you think? 
And then that gives me an opportunity to reflect and go, yeah, I, I really like the way I wrote this script and I, but I stuffed up a little bit. I didn't get the traffic reporter on the phone quite quickly enough for you. And that's their opportunity to go, yeah, it wasn't really an issue today, but you know, when we get really busy, that might be an issue. So therefore I have then given myself feedback because I know that, you know, maybe I could have been a bit better on that. And then, then they acknowledge it. Yeah. So then I take that on board because I saw the feedback first and then it was reaffirmed. So yep. it's not negative at all. It's me feedbacking myself, so to speak. Yeah, and it feels very conversational that it's two colleagues having a conversation that's about sharing and improving. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So you reached out for some feedback, got offered three jobs. So then what happened? Yeah, so I moved to Albury Wodonga, which was a start of a, a big radio network called DMG Radio at the time had dozens and dozens of radio stations right across the country. So it was a great grounding for all things in media. So I sat there for a couple of years and then I just got transferred throughout the company, each time getting kind of a promotion as I went. And again, that just didn't happen by chance. It ended up being the Nova Network. DMG then bought a lot of radio stations around the country. But I didn't expect people or the big bosses of the company to know that I wanted to move. Mm-hmm. So I would, I sent a card, for example, and I remember distinctly, it was a greeting card in the shape of a radio, and I sent it to the big boss of that company, and I said, this is me, this is what I'm doing, I'm in your little station in Albury, but I would like to move to a capital city, and I understand you've just bought a Perth license, I would like to go to Perth to improve my career, blah, 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 blah. And next thing you know, they moved me to Perth. But I had no idea whether that chief executive knew my name or not. Yeah. But he did after he got that card. Yeah. And then I was proceeded to move to Perth. Then another position came up in the Brisbane radio station, again with the same network, and I did something very similar. I made the bosses know why I was right for that role in Brisbane, and the next thing you know, I was promoted to Brisbane as the news director. But again, that didn't land in my lap. I went out and got it. Yeah. Again, another really great takeout in terms of not just sitting back and passively hoping. And I know that I was guilty of that at different stages in my career of thinking, you know, I'm busting a gut here. If I just keep working really, really hard, someone will notice and then they'll give me a pay rise or they'll give me a promotion or whatever. And that was just such a passive approach that I do not recommend at all, that it is really important to firstly figure out what it is that you actually want next and to make sure that you're communicating that to the right people in an appropriate way. And I love the the fact that you took the approach of sending the card, for example, as something that would really just have stood out in terms of a little bit more effort. It wasn't just firing off just an email or something like that, but something in the post it really would, and particularly for Nova as a brand, would have added that element of quirkiness and character that they really were looking for at that time. Very much so. It, it was targeted, and all my approaches along these kinds of lines, on these kind of lines, are very much targeted and thought out. So I'd spent a couple of years at Nova Brisbane as the news director, and something changed in me. I wasn't getting the job satisfaction. You know, I just didn't particularly like the workplace I was in. It was a great workplace, but I decided it wasn't for me. There was more to life in my media career. I'd also um, started seeing a guy in Sydney. So I thought, all right, well, I'll move to Sydney, but I don't want to work in Sydney radio. 
And again, out of the blue, I went, I wonder what TV's like. Um, <laughs> As you do. I've done a little bit of television. I used to work for Parks and Wildlife in their, their communications area. And I used to do a bit of, you know, Ranger Lisa type stuff on the TV show. Love it. Um, so I kind of had a little bit of a taste of TV, but I wasn't that experienced. And I sent off my resumes to the bosses of both the breakfast shows, so Sunrise and the Today Show. And again, it wasn't an email. I put in so much creative work into those applications. I actually ended up scrapbooking my application because the theme I wanted to say is I work in the media. I know how hard it is to make seamless radio and television when I know behind the scenes all hell is breaking loose. (laughs) So I wanted the analogy of a swan gliding across the lake where the swan is nice and graceful, i.e. the the television presenters, but underneath – those legs are kicking really hard. They're getting caught in pollution. They're getting caught in weeds, blah, blah, blah. So I actually scrapped bought a similar analogy. You know, I had the blue paper and I had the swan. Yeah. And then as well as, I mean, all being well, that was nice and creative, but I needed the content as well. Mm. So I scrutinized those television shows. I knew who their market was. I time-coded the shows. I sat there for three hours and wrote everything that television show did. So I was right across the product. And again, I just said why I would be right, what I could offer to these executive producers of these shows. I couriered down these physical applications and then followed it up with an email application saying the same thing. So they had the physical copy on their desk first of all, and then later on that afternoon they had an email copy, just in case, you know, they had to send it to HR. Yes, yeah. And again, I did that because I wanted to stand out on their desks. I know how desks are in these environments and there are just pages and pages of paper and all sorts of things. But that's why I went for the scrapbooking. I wanted their attention and if there was a stack of resumes, I wanted mine at the top. Yeah, love it. And within the next day, I got calls from both television programs Mm -hmm. offering me interviews. Yep. So again, straight away, keep in mind, by this point, I'd actually quit my job at Nova. I've mm-hmm. gone to my boss and said, I want to try things. So I tried new shifts and moving around and I still didn't get that job satisfaction, keeping my boss, uh, Sean, in the loop the entire time. And it came down to a catch up with Sean. And I respect this man as a boss. And this was such a fabulous lesson for me to learn. I just sat across his desk and I said, look, I've tried everything. I'm still not enjoying my job. I'm not sure what else I can do. And he said, well, maybe it's time to leave. And I went, yes. And there and then he said, all right, let's set the date. There was no going back. He absolutely knew. He goes, okay, we've tried everything, Lisa. I've been very open. Now it's time to sever the cord. Yeah. And I thought that was extremely good management. I think a lot of people would have been taken aback, but I needed to hear that. It was like he gave me every opportunity and when it wasn't working, okay, let's cut the cord. And away we did. So I walked out of there without a job. And that said, at that time, I'd already started focusing on my applications for Sunrise and Today Show. So yeah. I did have backup, but I still left that, that office without a job. Yeah, and that's what I was just going to ask is that the impact of that is, okay, you've got some germs of an idea, potentially starting to do some outreaches, but you're really looking at an interstate move crossing into, I guess, still within media industry, but a different platform. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. So what kind of things do you think were going on 
for you? If you think back to that time, yes, you tried some different options at your current workplace and still were not getting that satisfaction. Then you're walking out with this being a a decisions made, you no longer have that job and the clock is ticking to when you're going to finish. What's going through your mind at that point? The first thing is, and this is why I'm probably in a really good position and quite different to most of my peers, is I don't have debt. Mm -hmm. I've never been one to plant roots because I move so often all the time. And so it just hasn't been in my financial interest to buy a house and plant those roots. Yep. So I never invested in a house or bricks and mortar. So I could go without work. That was the simple thing. I And again, if I had to um, stock shelves, I was prepared to do so. Yep. So I had that freedom. I didn't need work. Well, I, I did need work, but it, I wasn't in a bad way. I wasn't going to lose a house because I couldn't make a mortgage repayment. Yeah. And at the time, I was staying with my father. <laughs> Poor bugger. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I had a roof over my head. Yes. Uh, and a little bit of savings behind me, but I just, yes. It's interesting, Chandra, in front of me I have a notebook. I did a um, a session with you 10 years ago in six weeks, so <laughs> I've still got the book. Chandra Moran, uh, Moran uh, Life Coaching, June 16, 2009, and I've written some notes about what we discussed in that uh, life coaching session. And the second thing I've got written down, actually, no, the first thing is Lisa likes adventure. (laughs) Still current. The second thing I've got written down is something that you said to me at the time. What would it cost me if I didn't change what I was doing? And to me, that's a great question because what would it cost me? Sure, it would cost me money because, let's face it, I didn't have a job to go to. But it would also cost me my sense of worth, my job satisfaction, and simply my satisfaction with the way I lived. Yeah. So the cost was quite significant to me at the time. You've blown my mind that you have that notebook (laughs) from 10 years ago. With all your traveling, you must be an excellent filer. (laughs) I'm a hoarder. (laughs) Ah, okay. But it's all all at your dad's place. (laughs) And look, there's a couple of things in that, that obviously I'm an advocate for people getting coaching at these different critical times in their life to sort of help get some external perspective because sometimes it's just about you know the right question that helps you clarify for yourself about actually what's really going on here and what do I do with that because what I often see and it's so interesting for me to think about okay 10 years I've been doing this is (laughs) is the resistance that so many people would have had, maybe people listening right now in a job they're good at, they've had success in the usual hallmarks of what that means in their career, but they're at a point of feeling a little groundhog day or a little burnt out or just that that satisfaction just isn't there anymore. And despite feeling that way and having it take a toll, whether it's a toll on your health or just general happiness, but they still don't move because of all of the things that they resist and they don't look enough at the cost of them not changing. They only focus on the cost of the change. And I see that a lot. We'll get to this, but I then moved to Sydney, worked in TV a while, went part-time in TV and radio. Then I went full-time with the ABC and the location was Tamworth. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I've never been to Tamworth. 
And again, going back to the the first thing that's written on my um my page from twenty uh, rather two thousand nine, Lisa likes adventure. Yeah, um, I loved going out to Tamworth, and I got an agricultural science degree, so it was like fantastic. I was going to be a rural reporter out there, so the job was made for me to be perfectly honest, and it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And after a couple of years, I got opportunities to manage teams so I would be just for short-term contracts they'd send me to Brisbane they'd send me to other locations to manage teams because I was flexible and again I put my hand up said hey look if you need me to fill in somewhere else I'm available Mm -hmm. and then it got to a point they sent me to Darwin for a few months and then I just thought it was unfair of me on my listeners, on the listeners of ABC New England Northwest, for me, to have me coming and going because you really build a rapport when you're a rural reporter. You, you rely on a relationship with your farming contacts to get the stories out there. Mm-hmm. And having me coming and going wasn't fair to that listening audience. And I kind of figured I enjoyed travelling around. Perhaps, maybe, I could make it work and be a bit of a, a floater, as you call it, a little bit of a an ABC gypsy traveling from station to station, filling contracts and exploring the world. And again, I still didn't have bricks and mortar. I still didn't have a debt. Obviously, I don't have a family and I don't have a life partner, well, a partner that I can't take time away from, I should say. Yeah. So I, yeah, so that's when I threw in my job and away I went and I was traveling all over. I've done Last year, Chandra, I did, in fact, it's in the last 14, 15 months, I've done, let me do the counting, uh, 45,000 kilometres. Whoa, Zez. And this is the fun bit. I was in Brisbane and then I went, okay, my friend in Albany, Western Australia is having his 50th and I've always wanted to drive across the Nullarbor. So I picked up the phone and I rang the people, heads of the ABC regional areas in South Australia and then WA and said, hey, I'm coming through your way to go to a party. If there's any work, just let me know and I'll, you know, we can work something out. Well, I picked up a week's work as I went through Adelaide and then (laughs) I got four months work in Western Australia in Kalgoorlie while I was there. So again, I just went, I want to go exploring. I'd set myself up with my contacts to say I'm one of these people who can adapt pretty quickly and the ABC's taken me up on that and and I've successfully travelled the country in the last 14, 15 months. So I went Brisbane to Kalgoorlie, Western Australia. Then I'd already had tickets booked to a music festival, so I went through the desert, through to Uluru and then over to Birdsville for this music festival. By this stage I'd had a call from the Broom ABC and they said, Lise, do you want to come to Broom? And I went, Sure. Um, And so I took six weeks to drive from Birdsville over to Broome and then I got three or four months work in Broome. So that's the opportunity I've been able to give myself is that the trade-off between working is the adventures I have in between and also I have the adventures I have while I'm working in these remote locations that I would probably never go, go otherwise. Yeah, and I guess just the amazing stories and characters and people that you have come across that, again, you would probably never have the opportunity to connect with if you were doing the traditional work thing. And that's my happy. Yeah. That's, it's interesting. I'm referring back to those notes from 2009. <laughs> we should laminate um, them. <laughs> we should. You asked me the question. I, I even remember where I was sitting when you asked me this question, Chandra. How do I do inspiration? As in, what does inspiration look like 
to me. Mm-hmm. And my answer, I've written happy, comma, blue skies. And the blue skies is the big thing. It's an outdoor thing. Yep. When I'm outdoors, when I'm exploring, that's when I'm my most happiest. Yeah. And that's what I get to do. And, man, the stuff I've seen, the people I've met, the situations I've been in and out of, and that's another big thing for me. I don't stick to highways. I have a four-wheel drive and I go very remote. And that's what makes me feel alive because I'm out there and there is no one. There are days I don't see another human being. That's how remote I am. Mm. I take every possible precaution. Again, it all comes down to preparation. I don't take this willy-nilly. And I'm very much aware of the consequences of when things go wrong. And it's not a matter of if, it might just be when I'm prepared. I've got emergency locator beacons. My friends can track wherever I am at any um, every hour of every day, emergency water and food supplies, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm prepared. So when things go pear-shaped, I'm as prepared as I possibly can be. Yeah. But that's half the fun of it. That's not for everyone, but that's what makes my heart sing. And this is the thing. This is the stuff that makes me get kind of juiced up is when people – figure out the components, the ingredients of a optimal life for them. And it doesn't have to look like anybody else's idea of perfect. It's just got to be what's right for you. And to then, as you're, you know, giving that example of going remote, because that is a whole nother level of aliveness for you, being prepared for what is that road literally need from you and how do you make sure that you're setting yourself up for that for other people it may the road that they're going down is a different career trajectory or stepping up to leading people when they have not had people directly reporting to them before and there's challenges that come with that for other people it might be starting up their own little business of their own product or service that they're offering but it's about knowing that's the way that I want to go Now, how do I set myself up to have a really great crack at it? Yeah, it's all about preparation and belief. I didn't just grab, buy a four-wheel drive and off I went into the desert. Even though I see people who do that and there are Facebook pages, my favourite Facebook page is I got bogged at Inskip Point, which is (laughs) um, a beach north of Brisbane near Fraser Island. And all I see are these people who buy a four-wheel drive, you know, one week and they think that they've got a four-wheel drive, they can go anywhere. And they're bogged. And a lot of time, sometimes those vehicles get trashed and they're brand new because sure, they've got a four-wheel drive, but they don't know how to use it. Yeah. So I got my four-wheel drive. I joined a four-wheel drive club. I've done everything I possibly can to prepare. I spend money on the maintenance of my vehicle. And it's exactly the same thing. If you're in business, you've got to do the groundwork to make sure that when you do make that decision to travel or you know launch your business that you've got everything going for you, that you're as prepared as you possibly can be. Yeah, yeah. And I think I've decided that that you're the only person that I know who managed to get work on the way to a party. Do you know I didn't even make the party? No, really? (laughs) I got really busy at work in Kalgoorlie and I missed the party. (laughs) I still made it to Albany and had a great time, but after all that, after 4,000 Ks, I missed the party itself. (laughs) You you became the after party. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But that was a decision I made. Like the boss said, no, you've come over for a party. Let's make sure you get there. And I said, no, I think I've got too much work on. So I'm, you know, I'm still pretty sensible and I'm dedicated to the job at hand. Yeah. You know, something's got to give. And I'd, I'd had a good trip so far and I, 
I was going to make it to Albany anyway at some point, so that was okay. Yeah, awesome. It was the catalyst, though, for opening yeah. up that new trip, if you like, that then – and this is the thing where sometimes things that happen don't make sense in the moment, but when you look back on them, it's whether it was a challenge or a new opportunity that you said yes to, that then you can look back and go, well, if I'd never done that, I wouldn't ever have been – at this point, which led to that thing happening or that person or that story, that connection, that whatever. And that's where I think the more you can know yourself and create and orientate your life around more of what makes you happy, that's when those different opportunities just literally seem to drop in your lap. It's that meeting point of what do they say of um, preparation and inspiration or something like that. And that's what it seems to me that you've created this lease a lifestyle that does feed your soul in the ways that you like. Yeah, and I also come up against other people who can't understand the way I live. So I will be travelling alone and I travel very wisely on my own. I'm very aware of the things that can go wrong and often that has to do with other people. So I'm, I'm pretty wary about people I see on the road, but I often there are I'll be at a campsite or something and I'll go and introduce myself to a few people and just have a chat because that's where the fun is. Hmm. And I've had women say to me, particularly women, oh, you must be so lonely. Oh, I'd hate to be you. Oh, this is terrible. I can't believe you do this. And I've also had men saying, what are you running from? And so these people have no concept of, A, what it's like to do this on your own and the fun I have. And a lot of women, I'm afraid, I see really do think that they need their man. Yeah. It's become very obvious to me that the man drives, he sets up the caravan, he does everything, and the woman would be nothing without the man. That's something I've noticed in probably the over 65s women I've I've met. Yeah. And the the men, again, the over 65s, they think it's their place to come and save me or come and help me and It's a really interesting demographic that I meet on the road of older people set in their ways of their place, particularly with gender. Yep. That isn't the norm always, though. I've met a couple of really feisty, I reckon that both of them would have been 80 years old separately. I met a lady in the bush outside of Kalgoorlie, and I reckon she would have been 80, and she had a little camper home. And we were talking about life on the road and travelling on her own. And she said, I just can't meet men these days because they either want a nurse or a purse. (laughs) And I just went, oh, my God, we are now best friends. I was going to say, you just met your spirit sister. (laughs) And she said, the men that I meet, yes, they've they've blown all their money on a late life crisis or they've lost it in their latest divorce or whatever else, or they're ill. And she goes, I'm not going to sit at home and look after them. I just want to go travelling. So I went, you're a legend, nurse or purse. I reckon that's (laughs) absolutely brilliant. And another guy, he would have been 80 years old and he just travels around and goes fishing. It's like what a gorgeous life on his own. So there are the older generation who get out there, but there are still people I meet on the road who are very not okay with what I do. They don't particularly like it. Um, And it's interesting, the younger generation, when I've met some guys on the road and I had a flat tyre, for example, an isolated flat tyre, a long way from anywhere, and it's pretty Four-wheel drives have really big tyres. Yeah. So it's a physical challenge, and I'm up for it. I've changed lots and lots of tyres. And 
there was a, a young guy and his partner came across and said, oh, would you like a hand? Because I just started to change the tyre. And I said, actually, while you're here, I'm just having trouble undoing the wheel nuts. Once I've done those, I'm fine. Uh-huh. And I would have been able to get the nuts eventually. But, yep, he loosened the wheel nuts and then off he went. And I went, yes, that's all I wanted. Mm-hmm. I didn't want someone to hold my hand and change my tyre because as lovely as these older people are, they still want to be, oh, I'll save you, I'll change your tyre. You know, the you rescuer. Can't on your own kind of thing. Yeah, very much rescuers. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm sounding really ungrateful, but it's something that's I find really quite interesting that these younger guys are most helpful and they will listen to, hey, look, thanks very much for t- helping. If you could just loosen the nuts, that's all I need. Okay, no worries, off, it's done. Whereas when it happens to older people, they'll say, no, 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 I'll change your tie. It's like, no, no, I'm really good. I quite enjoy doing this. Yeah. No, no, I'll do this. And then they're in my car, then they're grabbing tools, and it's like, oh, no, I don't even want, you know, no. Yeah. And you sound ungrateful, I know. No, actually, I don't think it's ungrateful at all. What I think is really interesting because I, I'm doing this interview series because I, I love to showcase different ways that people have created a work life that they love and there isn't and doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all. And one of the common things with the interviews I've done so far is that when someone has made a significant change, we had someone who was a really successful vet who decided to not do that anymore because she had kids and she wanted to focus on spending more time with them and she was starting this fledgling little company creating nutritional supplements for triathletes. And there were people in her family and her friends who just looked at her and really were quite critical about, are you insane? Why would you walk away from this? But what I think that's really about, it's confronting for people to see someone actually doing what they want to do because it makes them as an individual question, well, why aren't I or why can't I? So it's like what you're doing somehow affronts their identity and therefore they have to try to force that on you even more because otherwise they might have to question their own reality. Do you know what I mean? Very much so. And I, yes, I have examples of that as well because a few years ago I actually wrote a little book and it's a book I didn't tell many of my friends that I was writing because I thought, no, nah, this isn't for everyone. They'll mm-hmm. think I'm nuts. And also so many people say, oh, I'm writing a book. Everyone wants to write a book. So I just thought, no, I'm just going to buckle down. And I wrote this book and it's been the most extraordinary adventure. But again, that was an interesting challenge. It was, And this little book is an after-death action plan. It's a funeral planning guide. I'm so So, glad you brought this up because I was going to ask you about this side gig, this side thing that that you have. So tell everyone, what's the book called? It's called The Bottom Draw Book, The After-Death Action Plan. So what it is, it's just a, um, a brightly illustrated, lightly written, full of dad jokes planning guide. So I call myself a death literacy advocate. I like people talking matter-of-factly about death and dying and being prepared for it when it comes because grief does silly and horrible things to people and when people have to make decisions about funerals, for example, when they're grieving, they're not thinking clearly and they're not sometimes making the best decisions. So Mm. I wanted just to say, hey, here's a bit of paper that you can write on, a little book. Do you want to be cremated or do you want to be buried? 
And then if you want to be cremated, what do you want to happen to ashes? What do you want in the coffin with you? You, you know, do you have a favourite teddy bear or little things like that? What do music want- do you want? Yes. I remember oh, that's one thing. one of the things that Mick and I actually, because we are lovers of the book and have bought many for family members and friends, and that's one actually that interestingly both Mick and I have had lengthy conversations about, you know, the soundtrack of our funeral. <laughs> <laughs> we probably need to revisit it actually to add some new ones. But, yeah, so that side project, had that been something that had been – kicking around in the back of your mind for a while? Did you have a bit of an epiphany or how did that come about? Wow, God, this is a long story, but I'll make it short. I've always had an interest in Western society's perception of death and dying. Mm -hmm. We just don't talk about it. Eastern cultures make it a very much a way of life, but over here in the West, we don't talk about it. We give our loved ones to a funeral director in the middle of the night and we never see them again. We just don't want a bar of death in this country. Mm. So I've, I've always found that interesting. And in my teens, I read a series of books by a, a renowned psychiatrist, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who her groundbreaking work in the 60s and 70s looked at the emotional needs of the dying. And that had never been studied before. No one, you know, dying was very clinical in yep. those days, but she wanted to know, okay, what do people think? What do they want to hear? What do they want to say? So I read those books as a 14-year-old and they were my life-changer books. I went, wow, this is cool. So that sat in the back of my mind for decades and it was only when I was in Sydney and there was an open day at Randwick where they shut off the street and they have dances and, you know, all sorts of food stalls. But on that street was a Simplicity Funerals branch and at the front of their funeral parlour they had a cardboard coffin covered in Sydney Roosters logo. And I went, oh, my gosh, how cool is that? You can get a coffin with a logo on it. And I looked into it, and you can have any photographs printed onto these cardboard coffins. You can have plain coffins that you can um, write on or paint on yourself. And I went, this is cool. So I hopped on Facebook and a really innocuous comment with a link. And I went, hey, I found the coffin I want. Aren't these cool? And then my friend. As you do. Yeah, and then my friend Chiquita responded, no worries, we'll make sure that happens when the time comes. And then I thought, if I died, Chiquita probably wouldn't know because she was on the peripheral of all my friend groups. Mm-hmm. She's an outsider that no one else knows. So I thought, oh, I better write her name and number down so that she can arrange, you know, for me to She now knows time. about this. And then I thought, well, while I'm at it, I'll write a few more phone numbers down and oh, I'll write – I'll write a couple of songs down because I like those songs. I want those at my funeral. And then I started doing some research and I couldn't find information. There was nothing about cremations and burials and the ins and outs of all sorts of things. And I went, why can't I find this information in one place? This is nuts. So being a journalist, I just went down a rabbit hole. And so I was writing a few phone numbers down for my friend Chiquita. And then next thing you know, 69 pages later, I had a book, a planning guide. And again, I wasn't telling people that I was doing this. I just potted away. I'd research for months and write for months and then I'd put it away for a couple of months and think, oh, this is a stupid idea. <laughs> and then something would spark me, usually the death of a loved one or a, or a murder, and I'd pick it up again. Mm. And then I just went, one day I went, stuff it. It's, it's all in now. And I got serious about it, found an illustrator, and then next thing you know, I got all these books printed and it's gone nuts. I've only just this week gone to another reprint. Excellent. That's that's three now. It's just been so well received 
even without a lot of promotion. It's just my little passion as a death literacy advocate that I do. Yeah. Um, and again, it's fun. I travel all over the country and visit cemeteries because I like telling the tales of of people in those cemeteries because I think if people can understand the stories of those that have died, it opens up the communication of everyone having a story to tell. Why don't we hear that story while we're alive mm. instead of dead? So it's just my way of approaching the death subject a little bit lightly because I find out fascinating things from graves. I'll do my research and write a blog and the next thing you know I've, I've got 10,000 views of people who, who want to find out more and they become more open to discuss death and dying because, hey, they're interested in the cemeteries. Yeah, and look, this is just another example of where you've explored and stepped up to experiment with something that sort of what was like the collision of some interests and skills. So this interest from when you were a kid and the reading that you did when you were 14 coupled with your journalism experience has led you to create this whole new, never existed before, planning guide that actually gets the topic of death and dying and planning around that happening before people have gone and I think that's a a legacy that you will be leaving and I'm just so excited and at the risk of sounding naff so proud of you for having pursued that and bringing it to life. There are some days I wake up and I look at the book and I go who did this? Who did that come from? It's still amazing like I think it's been uh, 2013 late 2013 is when the first copy came out and the journey I've had researching it has been so much fun. Mm. It's been some tears because people write to me about lost loved ones and challenges they're facing with grief and stuff. But, man, it's just it's just extraordinary. Like the stories of, yeah, people I've met and the things I've done because of this little idea I had. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm not making any money out of it. Sure, I cover my costs, which is great. But as for, you know, am I going to retire on this thing? No, not at all. But it's, it offers me a little, a little insight into other people's lives and deaths at a really challenging time. And I'm just so thankful I'm able to help people out. But again, not everyone, my dad hated the idea. I remember exactly where I was when I rang him and said, look, this is what I'm doing. And he just went, oh, no one's going to buy that. And that's <laughs> Thanks, Dad. And that kind of reaffirmed why I wasn't telling anyone. And this is another point is I just knew it would work and I had it so clearly in my mind how it was going to work and what it was going to look like. And whether this is wise or not, Chandra, I don't know. (laughs) But, again, it was so clear in my mind I wasn't listening to other people and I didn't seek out advice. There are a few people I went to and said, hey, I'm doing this what kind of illustrator do I need? And I remember one lady who who was an author, she said, oh, no, 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 don't get an illustrator. The publisher will want to illustrate it for you. The publisher will want that creative control. And I went, no, I'm not letting anyone have creative control over this. I'm going to ignore your advice because it wasn't right for me. Mm -hmm. I listened to her advice and I accepted it, but it wasn't right for me. So I went, okay, but I'm not going to make your experience my experience. Yeah. And sometimes that's a challenging and uncomfortable thing to do of ignoring advice of someone who perhaps on the surface 
has more experience or is further down the road. But that links back, I think, to the level of trust in backing yourself and the idea. And that I think is so important that uh, that trust is there to persevere through the inevitable challenges. And every time you compromise on something that you in your core feel is right, every time you hit a challenge, you will use that and say, oh, well, that's why. And then it's another excuse of stopping instead of moving forward, instead of going, you know what, I'm going all in on this and I'm not going to be foolish, but I am going to make this my own because you're not just recreating another version of something that already exists. This is something new and it's your flavor. And so I think that's really important. It's very brave, but I think it's something that I really encourage people to do more of. Again, it comes down to your little book that I have from 2009. What would it cost me Mm -hmm. if I didn't change what I was doing? I kind of read that. What would it cost me if this didn't work? And to be honest, those costs were really manageable for me. It was a print run. I just enjoyed doing it. So the time wasn't costing me anything. It was just the physical outlay of a print run, to be perfectly honest. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? Sure, I lose, you know, I think it might have been $6,000 my first print run. I lose that. Well, yeah, all right, I'm up for that. I can afford that. Yep. So let's go. Yeah, Um, and you'd have gifts for every person that you met on all your travels (laughs) for the next couple of years. But this is the thing that I've heard it referred to or I don't know if I heard it called this or I made it called this in my head, a pre-post-mortem, which is where before you're going to do something, you go forward in your mind's eye and you go, okay, we're three months in, six months in, this thing has happened and it's absolutely gone to shit. Mm-hmm. So then you go, okay, what has gone wrong? And you just bullet point, list all those things out. I've got how many books in the garage and I um, can't sell any, publishers aren't interested, I've got the $6,000 debt, whatever, like you just list all those things. And then next to each one, you come up with at least one idea of how you could minimise the risk of that happening so that you give yourself a shot of preventing it if you can. Now, there's still going to be curveballs, things you haven't anticipated, but then you look at that and you go, okay, on balance of all the things that could go wrong, can I still live with that? And if I can, then I'm all in. Yeah. Living with your choices, that's a really good point. And I do that all the time. What's the worst thing that can happen? And for me, what the worst thing can happen, there is no worst thing. On my travels, the worst thing that can happen is a snake bite, which actually I'm prepared for. I have a snake kit. I've got my emergency locator beacon, all yep. that kind of stuff. Yep. But you know what? If I get bitten by a snake in the middle of nowhere, I'm prepared for that. And if that's my end, that's my end. I'm yeah. happy with that. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario is if I meet a person who wants to do me harm, that's something I'm prepared as possible I can be. I've... um got a few tricks up my sleeve that I do when I'm quite remote but you know what if that happens that's just another thing and that could happen to me in the city to be perfectly honest yes so I mean we all do that you know you walk to the car with your keys in your hand or you tell people that you're leaving the pub now Mm -hmm. you you do all that stuff you prepare yep so I'm prepared as possible but I'm open to the idea that there is a chance that that might happen but if it does then I've thought about it and I'm prepared for that risk. Yeah. So I've got just a couple of other questions. What do you think is most meaningful for you about the way that you live and work now? Oh, the most meaningful. The most meaningful thing about what I do is 
Obviously, with the book, it's helping people that I found my niche that I didn't know I was capable of. Mm-hmm. I had an idea, I went through with it, and it's been really successful. I've sold four and a half thousand copies of this book. But the fact it's all me and it's on my terms is probably the biggest thing. As for my work, traveling and working as I go, again, it's on my terms. And the experiences I get and the challenges I face on the way and usually beat those challenges. You know, I'm pretty good at getting myself out of a tight spot. That means everything. So that's it for me. It's that satisfaction of just, yeah, preparation, meeting opportunity and coming out the other side safe and sound. Yeah, awesome. Now, let's say someone's listening to this who perhaps is is back in that mode where you were in Brisbane of feeling like I've done a certain stretch of career, I'm pretty successful in lots of ways, but I'm numbed out to it a little bit. I'm just not feeling like this is the thing for me anymore. And they're weighing up how to take the next step, how to move from that, whether they should move from that on that or not. Do you have any thoughts or advice for someone who's perhaps in that situation? Just do it. Um, <laughs> I think Nike's already got that one. <laughs> Prepare. I'm an absolute adamant believer of following your gut. If your gut says, I'm scared as hell, but I reckon I can make this work, then listen to your gut time and time again. My gut has told me this. And this might be as simple as I'm at a campsite and I just get this feeling I have to move. And I will pack up my camp and I will move. Mm -hmm. Just because I don't know what, I'm at the point now I don't even question it. It's all in my gut. Same as the book. I just knew the book was going to work. I knew what I wanted it to look like and I knew what I wanted to achieve out of it and I did. When I quit my job in Brisbane, I just knew that something would come up. I'd prepared for it and I just knew it was going to happen. I just had to take that leap. And the second I took that leap, you know, I had calls from, you know, two of the most sought-after bloody occupations there is in the media industry and it's purely belief. Yep. I didn't take any of this lightly. It was all preparation. Obviously, financial, I didn't have to worry about because I don't have that mortgage. And again, if I can jump in on that, because money is definitely a huge factor for a lot of people that I either talk with casually or at networking events or something where they have this idea, perhaps have a passion or a dream of something else they could do, but because of money, they aren't prepared to step into that, to take the risk. And so they don't, they stay with that dream, that idea never coming to life. It's such a handbrake. But what you did was, whilst it sounds to me that you had set up your life so that the money would never be the handbrake for you. And I think, is there anything that you want to add on that that was the approach that you took? Yes. It comes down to, and this, again, going back to the life coaching sessions I did with you, Chandra, was you asked me the question, what does success look like to you? Mm -hmm. And my success has never been about a house with a white picket fence. It's never been about that or a big family or even a family, to be perfectly frank. And as soon as I worked out what success looked like for me and what happiness looked like for me, then I could make my adjustments. And I remember walking out of one of your sessions, and in fact, I remember even vocalizing it to you at the time, what does happiness look like to you? 
And my answer was having a swag in the back of my car and a full tank of fuel. (laughs) And that was also my measure of success, that I am in a position both physically and mentally to at any time, whether it's by necessity or just because I've got itchy feet, to leave. Yep. If someone called me up tomorrow, to be perfectly frank, let's go to Broomley's, I could. Yes. And that is my level of success. And I'm not stupid. I know that that sounds wonderful, but I'm also prepared to wear, to eat canned stew on the way because of my finances. Yep. My money goes into diesel and my car maintenance, and I will eat as cheaply as I possibly can, and I won't stay in hotels. I will either camp or sleep in the back of the Hilux. So there are those sacrifices I'm prepared to make. And I think anyone who thinks they're stuck in a job or they don't know financially how they're going to cope, can you downsize? Do you need that pool? Do you need those shopping sprees every two weeks? Do you really need them? Do they make you happy? And I never buy new clothes, Chandra, never. It's such a treat for me to walk into a shop and buy new clothes because I have clothes. I don't need new ones. I just wear the others and you know what, if people are going to judge me for whatever I'm wearing, I don't really give a toss. Yep. And that's another big thing. Just do your own thing and don't worry what anyone thinks because, you know, when you're sipping tequila on a beach in Darwin, you know. Yeah, where are those people then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So preparation is the key and everyone can make a change. It's little changes you have to make before you make that big change. So work yeah. out what success looks like to you. And then how can you get that level of success? Do you need that big house to get that? And I reckon, you know, don't know, answers and, will vary. And this is exactly the answers will vary and that's the point of clarifying what success looks like to you because then you have that as, all right, well, how do I navigate my way there and create a life that looks like that? And for some people it might be having multiple beachfront properties and it's like great well if that's what you're heading for then that's going to motivate you to do the things you need to do to have and create that kind of life all power to you for other people that won't be what they want and it's about not getting caught up with the generic one-size-fits-all version of success being willing to admit to yourself what really does motivate you what you do get lit up by and to create a lifestyle that works for you I remember listening to a a training years and years ago and it was with a guy, Thomas Leonard, who's largely regarded as one of the founders of coaching as a profession, an American guy who looks a bit like Colonel Sanders. He has passed away now. But he talked about that for years and years all he wanted was to buy a Porsche and that when he had the Porsche he would know that he'd really made it and he was a financial planner and then started having more and more conversations with his clients that weren't really about finances. It was about life and that's what ended up helping, I guess, craft what a life coach is and does. And then he got extremely successful in his business and realized that he didn't want to be confined to one place to live and he had always, since he was a kid, loved RVs. So he and his wife bought this apparently amazing RV and they had a trailer on the back and whatever and he got to the point where he could afford to buy the Porsche, no problem, but it would complicate his life too much to do it because where would he keep it and how often would he get to drive it 
And then he realised that actually it wasn't about the Porsche at all, that he could be in any city anywhere and hire a Porsche if he really, really wanted to drive one. And so it's about, what is he saying? Something like create a life that you love, not just an impressive lifestyle. Oh, yes. And I think a lot of people get caught up in that of the trimmings and the external stuff, which, you know, I'm a fan of having nice things and dining out and whatever, but it has to be in keeping with what's realistic for my life and not for the show of it. And I think the more you can kind of get to that point of going, what's the, as we said earlier, what's the ingredients that make up an awesome life for me? And the clearer you can get on that and make that happen, the easier I think life becomes. So where to next for you? Do you see, I guess, more similar things or have you got other things that are percolating in the background for you? I do have something percolating in the background. Of course you do. (laughs) Again, it comes down to this death literacy advocacy. Everyone has a story and unfortunately many people go to the grave without those stories being heard by those that should hear them. Mm -hmm. So my idea, and again, this is just an idea that I'm starting to plot and hopefully in the next couple of months I'll have it going, is documenting people's stories at their end of life. Mm-hmm. For example, I would record either probably orally or orally, so I'd use my journalist skills with a microphone or possibly even a camera. All right, Grandma Merle, tell your grandkids about that time you went to jail or you got arrested. <laughs> And so that whether it's their funeral or it's a gift for the grandkids, that they get to hear about their auntie Merle and what she got up to in her youth and they would never have heard these experiences unless I, someone like me had documented them. Yeah, Lisa, I love this idea and uh, I am sure that we are going to talk and hear more about that and I'm so excited that you've got, you know, the next evolution of you exploring this really uh, important part of why I think you're here on the planet. So I'm really excited to hear about that. Yeah, who knows how it's going to go. It might be a great flock. And, again, it comes down to what will I have to lose? Yes, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, probably time and the investment in the equipment and software I'm about to make, but that's it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, exciting times. Lisa, thank you so much for talking today and sharing your story I have no doubt that there are this people listening who will have got some ideas some insights some inspiration from the way that you approached your transition to the various stages of your career and life so I just really want to say thank you for being so open and sharing your message and wish you all the very best in continuing that and this new venture as well thank you thanks for listening to the transit lounge if you liked it please do me a favor and leave a review so i can keep doing more episodes for you and come and say hi in the private facebook group the transit lounge being ceo you in the business of your life i really look forward to connecting with you there and until then do whatever you can to create a future that you will love through the choices you make today today